Okay, so last week uh, we were talking about justification. Uh, if you have your outline, go ahead and grab that, haul that out. We talked about uh, the Roman Catholic understanding of justification and as, a, uh, as an aid to understanding and do a comparison and contrast between ourselves, and by ourselves I mean all of the Reformed churches, all the you know, uh, Protestant churches that are still interested in these sorts of things, comparing and contrasting those doctrines of justification with the Roman Catholic one. And of course there's a billion Roman Catholics in the world and even today, people that uh, were nurtured in the Roman, or excuse me, the Reformed churches, are being drawn away into Roman Catholicism. And we can speak in this presbytery of even a minister who uh, who left the Reformed Church to become a Roman Catholic. Um, so it's important that we understand where they're coming from and where we believe the Scriptures are coming from. And uh, as we saw, uh, there's a tendency amongst many. Not just Roman Catholics, but uh, you know, uh, groups that we would call cults and things like that, and even denominations, that when they err with respect to justification, will do so in two different directions, and we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the back of the uh, handout in more detail. But uh, many, including the Roman Catholic Church, when they when they make a mistake on the doctrine of justification. Uh, do so by blurring the lines of distinction between justification and sanctification. As we saw from various sections in the Catechism, the Roman Catholic Catechism, uh, they define justification as we define sanctification. In fact, they use the word sanctification in their definition of of justification. And we saw that from several sections of the Catechism. Uh, I brought that in, so if anybody wasn't present and wants to hear that read for you, uh, we could do that again. But uh, we do have a lot of material to go through today. I would encourage, uh, other than that question, uh, as we move through the outline today, please uh, let's wait till the end for questions uh, so that we can get through it. Because I do want to finish the outline today. Uh, We have a lot to go through in the next four Lord's Days, including today, before we wrap up and uh, move on to the winter term. Okay, are there any questions about anything I've said thus far before we dive into the outline? Okay. So let's turn in our outline to the section on sanctification. We kind of introduced it last time. I believe I read out of the catechisms. Uh, I will read... Section 77 of the larger catechism from this, from the uh, published version, the hardbound, page 216. Uh, We don't have any larger catechisms in the pews. We do have a shorter catechism, I believe. I know that we do in the back of the hymnal. But uh, let me just read you this paragraph from larger catechism 77. This is, again, our catechism at this point. Uh... Question and answer 77. Wherein do justification and sanctification differ? Although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, and that's a key point that we'll deal with in detail, although they be inseparably joined together, yet they differ in that God in justification imputeth the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuseth grace and enableth to the exercise thereof. 
In the former, that is justification, sin is pardoned. In the other, that is sanctification, sin is subdued. The one doth equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God, and that perfectly in this life, that they never fall into condemnation. The other, sanctification, is neither equal in all, nor in this life perfect in any, but growing up to perfection. Now, let's turn in our shorter catechisms in the back of our hymnals to page 377, the shorter catechism number 35, question and answer 35. Uh, in the hymn, oh, in the hymnal, I actually don't know what it is. If somebody could call out the page number for question and answer 35 in the shorter catechism, that would be helpful. Thank you. So, Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 35, what is sanctification? (coughs) Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin, and to live unto righteousness. And that is where we get the word, this idea of this being made holy, that's where we get the word sanctification from, from the verb form which is to sanctify or to make holy. So that's the difference between sanctification and justification. And as the larger catechism pointed out, you can't have one without the other. They're inseparably joined is the language of the larger catechism. So if a person comes to Christ in faith, they will be justified, as we saw from Romans 5, 5, they will be justified at that moment on going forward. Okay? But sanctification uh, is kind of broken up into two uh, categories or aspects, I guess you could say. The first aspect being uh, what we'll deal with here in the outline, sanctification number two, blank sanctification. That's a decisive break with sin's dominion. Does anybody have any idea what I'm gonna what, what what fills in that blank? There's two blanks there on two and three. Blank sanctification is a decisive break with sin's dominion, and three has blank sanctification, a progressive liberation from sin's presence. Initial. That's a good word. I'm looking for a particular word. Progressive. That's good for the you know, number three would be progressive sanctification, progressive liberation from sin's presence. But the first one is the term, the theological term that we uh, use these days and for a while now is uh, definitive sanctification. Same thing as what Very good. So definitive sanctification is a decisive break with sin's dominion. When you come to Christ, you're not only in justification, declared righteousness, righteous before him, as if you had throughout your whole life obeyed all of his law, every jot and tittle of it, and thought, word, and deed, and had committed and uh, had been positively obedient your whole life, but you are declared, or excuse me, that's the justification part. In definitive sanctification, at that moment, sin's reign over your life is broken. You are no longer a slave of sin. There has been a decisive break with sin's dominion over you. Sin no longer reigns over you. 
However, that's not the only aspect of our sanctification. The, the, the aspect of our sanctification that gets a lot more press is this idea of progressive sanctification. And the Shorter Catechism highlighted that. This idea of a progressive liberation from sin's presence. So although when you come to Christ, you're declared righteous in Christ, that's your justification, but there's also a decisive break with sin's dominion, and that is your definitive sanctification. At that mo- moment, you know, sin was like Pharaoh, and it held you in slavery, and you're no longer under that, that dominion of slavery, of slavery to sin. You're now under, you know, as Paul calls it, slaves of Christ. So you've changed masters, you've changed lords. Sin was your master before, now Christ is your master. However, there's also the reality that from that moment on, sin's presence in your life will become, you know, less present. It'll become less powerful. So you're not really, when, when, when you've transferred master from sin to Christ, that does not mean to suggest that you will be sinless going forward. That there will be no sin present in your life. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that although there's been a decisive break with the dominion of sin, you will not be freed from sin's presence entirely until, until you're ushered into glory. Okay? So, those are the two aspects of sanctification we need to highlight to understand what the Bible teaches about sanctification. First of all, it's inseparably joined to justification when you come to Christ. And second of all, uh, there are two aspects to sanctification. A decisive, momentary, definitive point in time when you were translated out of the the realm of sin to, to the realm of Christ. And for the rest of your life, uh, allowing for you know an undulating course of obedience and disobedience in your life. You'll notice that as, as a Christian disciple. There's seasons in your life when you're more obedient than others, and you could you could you could liken it to a point uh, like a wavelength where there's crests and troughs in your Christian walk. But what the Bible teaches is that for the person who is actually united to Christ. That undulating pattern of crests and troughs that you've noticed in your life will nevertheless be trending upwards, as it were, so that you'll become progressively less sinful. And the irony of sanctification is, and your awareness of the presence of sin in your life, even though you're sinning less, you know, over the course of the years of your discipleship, you will feel like you're sinning more than you ever have. But that is just because you are being progressively sanctified more and more and are more grieved, just like the Holy Spirit within you. And that just goes to show that your conformity to him is improving and increasing over those years. So, yeah, the irony is that the more sanctified you become, the less sanctified you feel. Okay, so let's look at a couple of passages here on these questions. Let's turn in our Bibles to... 1 Corinthians 1, right at the opening of 1 Corinthians. And you'll note that as a proof text for definitive sanctification, number two, 
we're using 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. And as a proof text for progressive sanctification in at line 3, we're also using 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. So that verse reads, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Okay. So, where's the definite... This is the ESV, and hopefully that's what you have before you so that we're all on the same page, as it were. But where in this verse do we see the term that best communicates definitive sanctification? Well, the word to be in there Keep looking. Sanctified is... Sanctified. Yeah, that's what I wanted to... I can see why you would think that 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 one would be a little confusing there. So maybe that wasn't as clear as I I had thought it might be. But in my own mind, when I was looking at this, I was like, well, that's a good way to show the definitive and the progressive aspect. So I'll share why I came to that thought, that this illustrates both. Sanctified, you know, its tense is a past tense. It's an accomplished reality. So in that sense, you can see how Paul, writing to those converted people in Corinth, says that they are sanctified. That's something that's accomplished. It's something definitive. It's something that took place in the past. It is also at the same time they were justified. You know, letting the scriptures interpret the scriptures. That's what we would find. But also called to be saints is something that kind of holds out the idea that that's still something that's, at least in part, is something before them. They're called, that's kind of the, the, the present or accomplished idea, to be saints is kind of the future idea. So you can see that in this one text, we have both of these ideas that Paul gives us here. The idea of definitive sanctification, we are sanctified in Christ, but there's yet this progressive aspect to sanctification as well. I could refer you to chapter 6, verse 11 for more on, this, on uh, this idea of a decisive break with sin's dominion by being sanctified in the past, but I'll just move on. Moving on to subsection 4, the question, is sanctification optional? Is sanctification optional? So, I've made the point already That if you do come to Christ truly in faith, saving faith, legitimate, real, living faith, that you will be not only justified, but you will be sanctified. That the two must be kept distinct, but they can never be separated from each other. But, you know, there are certain schools of thought in the church, for instance, the wider church, I mean, where it is held that, you know, if you're justified in Christ... You don't need to have a a thought to things like sanctification or holy living or obedience to the commandments or things like that. Um, And I guess we'll talk about that in more detail, but that there is that notion out there that if you can just have your justification by faith in Christ, but this idea of sanctification, well, that's that's tending into legalism and things like that. And you might have heard of this sort of language before. But since we will deal with that in greater depth, uh, below, uh, we'll just move on. However, let's let's look at Hebrews twelve fourteen before we do. Hebrews twelve and verse fourteen. 
says the following. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So sanctification or holiness as it's put here is not something optional. It's something that must be present in the life of the believer or they will not see the Lord. That's the NASB for you. It's very precise. Very precise. Thank you for that. Okay, let's see. Let's move on to the next one, subsection 5. Through sanctification, God performs his Old Testament promises respecting the new covenant. Now, that's something that doesn't get discussed a lot either, but let's turn to the book of the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, and look at some texts that talk about how sanctification, our holiness, that is our God-likeness, our obedience to his law and commandments is something that was actually the core of Old Testament promises respecting the coming new covenant. Ezekiel 36 and verse 27. All right. Let's go ahead and start at 26, actually. 3626. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Let's also look at Jeremiah. Go to the left to Jeremiah, chapter 31, before we talk about it. Chapter 31 and verse 32, where we read. I guess I'll start at 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, so some people of a certain sort of theological persuasion might think, well, that just applies to Israel. It says Israel in there, it says Judah in there, and all that other stuff. This has to do with them and not to us. But here as elsewhere, you cannot sustain those ideas. Please turn in the New Testament to the book to the, uh, of, of Hebrews, chapter 8. To see where this kind of stuff, especially Jeremiah, this is the text right here in Hebrews 8, that's applied to the church. And I won't, I won't run through those quotes again. It's, it's the same language. 
So you can see that the substance of Old Testament promise concerning the coming new covenant was what? It was that God would put his spirit within us and write his laws and statutes and rules on our hearts and make us obedient to them. So putting his spirit within us in order to be obedient to him, that is his commandments, is what was the substance of the promise of the Old Testament. We know that the gospel involves a lot more going on with the work of Christ and all these other things, but we can't lose sight of the purpose is to make us godlike, and as we see, there's a progressive aspect to that that we'll never attain this side of glory. Nevertheless, that is the substance of Old Testament promise about the coming new covenant. So, moving on to subsection six. While justification is God's declaration, sanctification is a divine and human activity. Okay, so we've made a distinction between these works of God on our behalf in our redemption through the person and work of Christ. Uh, It's been broken up into two different kinds. In justification, for instance, we call that a monergistic work of God. That is mono, meaning one, and the word energy is in there too, which is work. So that's God's work, God's thing where he declares us righteous in Christ. That's wholly him. We have nothing to do with that. Nothing that we do, again, contra Roman Catholicism as we saw, we have nothing to do with our justification. None of our works, none of our obedience, none of this, even this spirit-led obedience that we see talked about here. None of that has anything to do with our justification. That's God's thing. It's a judicial declaration on his part as the judge of the universe. When he unites us to Christ, his righteousness covers us, and we are righteous in his sight, and he declares us as such. That's our justification. You can see that we have no part in that. However, sanctification is something we call a synergistic work, and we are familiar with that term. That's where you have two or more working together to accomplish something. Well, we are participants in his sanctifying us in a way that we are not participants in his justifying us. So when he tells us to obey my laws and commandments in his word on the Lord's Day and when we're reading our Bibles, you know, whether it's from the pulpit or when we're at home studying, uh, he's telling us what to do, but his spirit within us is moving us to obey. You know, like it says in uh, Philippians 2, God is at work within you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And that's a direct fulfillment of those Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 passages, isn't it? God tells the church in Christ, God is at work within you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so when we hear that and we participate in that, that's a synergistic thing where we are, because of that spirit within us, working within us to will and to do to his good pleasure, We are obeying him and we are doing our part. We are participating in that in a way that we do not participate in our justification. Nevertheless, as we can see, it's not really 50-50, is it? Where God does so much and just leaves us to do the the other half. He's got to be a part of the whole process or we we would not participate. You know, it makes me think of a quote from Augustine. Well, paraphrase, because I don't think I can quote it at this point. But God only rewards his own good works in us. So as we participate, and as we are obedient, 
and are actively and willingly involved in this process of our own sanctification by being more obedient, the Lord rewards that. He rewards that obedience. He's inclined to do so under ordinary circumstances, unless there's some overriding principle of his providence that intervenes where he wisely denies us a blessing in order to instruct or discipline or correct. He's inclined to reward obedience. And... As Augustine says, he only rewards his own good works in us. That is, stirring us up to obey him and his, his commandments revealed in his word. Okay. As I say, it's not 50-50, uh, but we are involved. Uh, in other words, God's not making up for our shortcomings as we strive for holiness, where he steps back and lets us do as much as we can, and then he'll take over for us. That's a nice idea, but it's just not biblical. According to the scriptures, he is at work within us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. But as the uh, catechism said, that degree of participation in each individual believer will uh, it'll vary among believer to believer. And as we talked about in each believer's life as well, there's seasons of greater and lesser obedience. Nevertheless, he's participating all along the way. And he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. Let's turn to Ephesians, as you can see, Philippians 2, 12 there. That I, I referred to that already. That God is at work within you passage. Let's turn to Ephesians 2. Now this is a great passage, of course, to be familiar with. Oops. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. As we close up this sub, this paragraph, uh, this section, excuse me, on sanctification, um, this is a great text for us to look at. All right, looking at verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so we see works mentioned more than once in this text. Paul's anxious to point out that the justification, or the sanct- he just uses the term saved here. But the salvation we enjoy is by grace through faith. And then he says, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because if it was partially about our works, our salvation, those who had more works and those would have grounds to boast over those who had less, and those who had some works unto salvation, and those who had none, namely the damned, well, the saved would have grounds to boast over against them too. And then good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And that's, and that's how we would look at it. But Paul says that our salvation was by grace through faith, faith being the instrument, and that this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. He nevertheless goes on to say, unto good works. 
So this goes back, once again, to our formulas that we find in the Epistle to the Galatians. The two formulas, Paul's formula, the apostolic formula of our justification, is faith equals justification resulting in works versus the Judaizing gospel, which is faith plus works equals justification. It'd be good to write that down and, and familiarize yourself with that because it's it's kind of tricky. It's got the same three elements as I pointed out several times before. Faith, justification, and works are in Paul's formula and they're in the Judaizers' formula. But one is the gospel, Paul's version. The Judaizers' gospel, again, has the same three elements as Paul's, puts them in the wrong order. And what is the result? A lesser gospel? A gospel that's a little impure? No. Paul says it's a false gospel. And he pronounces an eternal curse upon those who convey it. So we need to understand that we can't screw up the doctrine of justification. We have to get the gospel right before we get the gospel out. If we don't, we could fall under this eternal curse. So note that Paul, when he's talking about this gracious salvation through faith, not as a result of works that no one may boast, he nevertheless includes in there that this is unto good works, unto good works. Again, hearkening back to this Ezekiel passage and this Jeremiah passage, these passages quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews 8 and elsewhere, that the substance of God's new covenant promise is that we would be obedient to his laws, that he would write them upon our hearts and cause us to walk in them. If we're going to walk with an eternity with this God, then we must be obedient to his law, not because of legalism, bad word, but because God's law is nothing other. It's not an arbitrary standard. It's a reflection of his character. And so if we're going to spend an eternity with him, he wants us to resemble him. That's why we use... We find language like image and likeness and things like that in the scriptures. Marred since the fall. Restored. Both definitively and progressively. In the new covenant. Okay. So, to kind of put a bow on this justification, sanctification, comparison and contrast. And like I said before, we talked about it comparing and contrasting with Roman Catholicism. Uh, If you could summarize... In simplest form, the distinction or difference between these two approaches to justification, the Reformed and the Roman Catholic. And again, the Reformed stand for a host of others, and Roman Catholics stand for a host of others. Uh, You could say that in our view, the Reformed view, what we believe is the biblical view, that you are justified by faith. And in the Roman Catholic view, you are justified by by faithfulness. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. Let's plow on in our effort to finish this thing, this beast, before the end of the, in the next 15 minutes. Okay, union with Christ is the next major heading. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians one thirty. I do encourage you for those part, those pieces, those pieces in the outline that are referred to here, but we don't take the time to refer to in class, to go ahead and read those verses and sections of our standards and 
uh, take from them as much as you can. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Let's stop there. Because of him, namely the Father, because of the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us, or for us, wisdom from God. Now these next two terms are are what I want to draw your attention to. Righteousness and sanctification. So because of God's grace, he has called us in Christ and united us with him. He gave us the instrument of our faith to connect us to him and to his person and works. And we are recipients of benefits of the redemption that's caught up with that union with him. Two of which are listed here that I want to highlight, righteousness and sanctification. We read that as justification and sanctification. Justification and sanctification. So it is by virtue of our union with Christ that we are both justified, declared righteous before God, and by God. And that we are sanctified, progressively made more righteous for him and his pleasure. So, one way I like to put it is, this idea of the works being present, the obedience being there, but not being a part of our justification at all. Nevertheless, it must be there. We are saved unto good works, not as a result of good works. Is to put it in another biblical way. And that is to say that we are saved, or I could put it like this, only fruit-bearing trees inherit the kingdom, but it is not on the basis of the fruit. And you can think about the biblical figures that you may be familiar with. When Jesus talks about you'll know a tree by its fruit, and we see language in the Bible about living branches producing fruit, The idea is there that the fruit-bearing branch is a living branch. A living branch is one truly and spiritually united to Christ. So someone who is truly spiritually united to Christ will be a living branch. A living branch will produce fruit. Remember John 15, the pruning language. There's things that even the living branch has some dead sticks and limbs hanging off of it. That, as painful though it is, the Lord's going to prune those off over the course of your life. But nevertheless, that living branch will produce fruit. And so only living branches inherit the kingdom. But it's not on the basis of the fruit. It is for the purpose of them bearing good fruit to God's pleasure. All right. Moving on to the next subsection. By being united to Christ, by faith in him and his work, we receive all the benefits of his redemption, including justification and sanctification. God informs believers in scripture of his gracious redemption in Christ, 
then commands the redeemed to live lives of obedience to his commandments. There is no tension between the indicative and the imperative, and I'll explain that in a second, unless we use God's commandments to obtain our justification, our acceptance before him. Okay, so in this little block here, there's these two words, imperative and indicative. Indicative is just a grammatical term meaning a statement. That's probably too simplistic, but we'll just stick with it. It's accurate enough. The grammatical case, or uh, mood, excuse me, of indicative is where God declares something as a fact. You have been saved by grace through faith. That's in the indicative. It has no nuance of do, do something. But necessarily implied in the unto good works language of Ephesians 2.8, to use one example among several, many I should say, there is imperative language that follows from the indicative. If you think about the paradigmatic redemption from slavery and bondage that we see in the Bible, that would be the Exodus, wouldn't it? And in the Exodus, you got God delivering his people on the basis of his promises, not on the basis of their merit or their worth, as he makes abundantly clear in many texts in the Old Testament. He takes them out, and he brings them out to the desert, and then he reveals his commandments to them. So notice the, what came first. The redemption came first by grace. Then later came the commandments, and in the expectation they would obey them. But when you look at the Ten Commandments themselves, you're even in the Ten Commandments themselves, you see the indicative and the imperative. Before the Ten Commandments, the imperatives, you know, the mood of you will do this. That's another grammatical term, it's an imperative. The mood of command. Before the Ten Commandments are even uttered, God first preambles it with the indicative. I brought you out of the house of slavery. Okay, so anytime you're looking in the scripture for, to understand the relationship of faith and works or faith and faithfulness, you have to have the cart behind the horse. If you don't, you're going to wind up with a Judaizing gospel with the faith plus works equals justification instead of faith equals justification resulting in works. Okay, so there's really no tension on the question. Works will be present in the life of the believer and his justification, his or her justification will have nothing to do. There will be nothing to do. It will not take into its consideration faithfulness or fruit or works or anything like that. Those will be there because a living branch produces fruit. But again, you inherit on the basis of God's grace, making you a living branch, not on the basis of the fruit that will naturally grow on a living branch. Okay, flipping the page. And I do encourage you to uh, look at the uh, questions of the catechism later. We're going to try and finish this guy in six minutes or so. Okay, so the diagram. So, depends on what religious community in the Christian, under the Christian umbrella that you belong to, there may be an overemphasis on law keeping, or a more, or you could say on, on sanctification, you could put it that way, and then other branches of the Christian family, as it were, the professing Christian church, 
uh, more emphasis on justification. Now, what that means is that if you don't acknowledge that if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't acknowledge that you will be both justified and sanctified, and you can't be the one without the other, because, again, a living branch will produce fruit. But instead, you emphasize, do, do, do this, don't do that. You'll veer off onto the right of the page here in this category of legalism. <laughs> that is, you're, more, you're too obsessed with the sanctifi- sanctification part of the, the fulcrum, side of the fulcrum. However, if you also, there's also another extreme in the church. And that is a de-emphasizing the obedience. It's like, Jesus has done all for me, and I don't need to worry about all that obedience stuff. Well, that is to go on the justification side, emphasizing that benefit of redemption to the exclusion or detriment of the sanctification part. So both will be present in the believer. Anytime the person is truly united with Christ, there will be both justification and sanctification. You can't have one without the other and be truly united to him. So, moving in one direction takes you in the direction of legalism, as we talked about. But moving in the under direction takes you into another heretical field we have a name for, antinomianism. Anti-lawism is what antinomianism means, from the Greek word namas, meaning law. So if there's a justification emphasis, where you're focused solely upon the imputed righteousness of Christ, on the indicative parts of Scripture, where you are saved in Him, not as a result of works, um, you deny all these other things that we've seen uh, this morning. And you wind up like looking, looking down here on this, uh, this, this box right here. This is where you emphasize the believing is enough box. Christ's work for me. And you find many evangelicals in there, Lutherans as well. And on the other side, on the legalism side, emphasizing sanctification to, you know, and downplaying the reality and extent and significance of our justification puts you in this doing box where you're emphasizing Christ's work in me, not for me. And then you want, and then you see some of these churches and groups here, Romanism, Pietism, Liberalism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others. So, the way it works is, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Lord God gave you that saving faith, and that saving faith united you to him, you'll have both justification and sanctification, as two of the benefits of his redemption. And those aren't the only two benefits. There's also adoption. But those are the two we're highlighting. So looking at the uh, outline, union with the whole Christ. Below it, the way it works is, he rebirths you. You are born again. At the time he gives you faith, that unites you with Christ, that's that union part. And then, and so, you enjoy all the possession of all of the benefits of his redemption. Justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. So you have to emphasize both indicative and imperative. Put them in their proper place. Christ's work both for me and in me. 
my justification and my sanctification. That's all part of the apostolic gospel. It's a break with sin's dominion and deliverance from sin's presence. That's your sanctification. While justification is deliverance from sin's guilt or condemnation. Each is equally important to God. Each are essential objects of the Son coming into this world. Remember I told you there's a double demand since the fall. We have to deal with our sin problem, but we also have to deal with our forensic standing before God, our judicial standing before him, our condemnation. Remember, Adam was our representative. When we come into this world, we're coming into this world condemned, as we saw in Romans 5. And so the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of those who are saved in him has to deal with both the sin, sin's corruption in our sanctification and sin's guilt in our justification. Any questions? Good, because we're out of time. Oh, go ahead. Is it fair for me to say that we would normally um, believe that someone who sincerely believes the official teachings of the Roman Church or Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, is probably not going to heaven, who understands and believes those teachings, whereas someone who sincerely understands and believes the teachings of most Luther or evangelical churches could still certainly be going to heaven? Yeah, I believe I was saved as a Roman Catholic. So only over time, after leaving the Roman Catholic Church, because I saw the idolatry and I compared it with the Old Testament, I had issues with it, my conscience was uneasy about it, and so I left. But later on, I began to learn more and more about their gospel and how it differed from the biblical gospel. So I think that there are going to be people who are saved within Roman Catholicism, etc., at all, but not because of Roman Catholicism. Okay. Once they become, like you say, to understand what it teaches and how the difference is what, what they find in the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church or others and what they see in the scriptures, um, the Lord, you know, Jesus says, my sheep will hear me and they will follow my voice. And so if you are being followed by the Spirit, working with the Word, he will lead you out 99 times out of 100 unless he has some overriding reason to keep you where you're at. But ordinarily, a person who is led by the Spirit and the Word will leave those uh, communions in time, I believe. Um, good, great question. Let's close with prayer.